I would invite you to turn back in this section of the book of Jeremiah, chapter 13. This uh, small section we have read. This section concerning what uh, the top of chapter 13 of my Bible calls the ruined loincloth. Now, this is the first of the symbolic actions that Jeremiah does in this book. Uh, his book is actually filled with such things as uh, many of the books of the prophets are. I mean, think of um, the things that uh, Ezekiel, for instance, was called to do. Very strange things. People might have thought he was a little bit off of his rocker. Half the things that God had commanded him to do, in terms of even things he was called upon to bake and to eat. Uh, very shocking stuff. And it, it makes people wonder if those things actually really occurred or, or if they were some kind of a visionary, prophetic revelation that God gave. I mean, such things as uh, Hosea being told to marry uh, an immoral woman or uh, Isaiah being told to walk barefoot and, and naked, at least his sackcloth being loosed as he went through the streets of um, Jerusalem. Or uh, uh, Ezekiel being told not to mourn the death of his wife. I mean, some of those things are hard to handle and shocking in their nature. Uh, Jeremiah wasn't really called to do anything overly strange, overly shocking. Um, but there is a plethora of such symbolic actions that he was called upon to do. It begins here with the ruined loincloth. There's something about jars filled with wine in verse 12 to verse 14 of this same chapter. And then you can move on into chapter 18. He's told to go to the house of the potter and see the potter and the pottery on the wheel. And then a break, he has to break a flask in 19. He has to has a vision, maybe a vision of the basket of the, of the, of the figs in chapter 24. Uh, he's told to put a yoke upon his neck in chapter 27. And then Hananiah comes along, the false prophet, and he breaks it. Uh, so everybody's into this symbolism. The symbolism means something. Uh, the buying of the field in chapter 32, and many others as well that we're going to see as we move along. I think it's important to see that uh, these things, though they be shocking, though they be strange, though we can't figure out all the details of the whys and the wherefore, yet they are meant to communicate truth in graphic ways. And they're meant to get the attention of people. The prophet is doing these things so that people would say, what are you doing? Why are you doing it? Give us some reason. Give us an explanation. And then with this graphic picture that God's painting for the people... Um, explanation is given. Words are given to explain what these actions mean. And so what we're going to do this evening is we're going to look at this symbolic action in itself, try to figure out what in the world was Jeremiah called upon to do and how was it done. And then we're going to look at uh, what I'm just calling the striking alteration in the affairs of the nation. Okay, so a symbolic action and a striking alteration. Um, first of all, let's look at the symbolic action in and of itself. And there's a couple of things that are up for grabs with respect to this. Um, and uh, probably the major one is where was he told to go? Where was Jeremiah told to go? Um, you look at verse 4, it says, Take the loincloth that you've bought 
which is around your waist, arise, go to the Euphrates, and hide it there in the cleft of the rock. Uh, the major problem with that is the Euphrates is about 700 miles away. I mean, you're talking about uh, with travel at that time, kind of like a four-month trip there and back, or maybe eight months, I don't know. No, I think it's two months and two months, so four months. And then he has to do it again, just to go back and dig it up. So that's an awful lot of travel <laughs> for you know, a prophet like Jeremiah being called out of the land to, to do this thing just for the sake of burying something out of the sight of everybody in Judah. This is happening at the Euphrates if we believe that it's the Euphrates River in Babylon that's being referred to here. But there is another option. There is another option. Um, when you look up the Euphrates in the concordance, it's an interesting thing. Every Bible reference to the Euphrates speaks of the river Euphrates. Except here. There's no river Euphrates. It's simply the Euphrates. Or, if it doesn't say the river Euphrates, it would say the Euphrates in Babylon. It would give you something of a geographic marker. Babylon, Carchemish, was at the north end of the Euphrates, the north bank of the Euphrates. Those would be the markers that would be used. So you'd have some kind of geographic reference to say this is in fact the Euphrates River in Babylon where the people were exiled, uh, either the north or the south bank. No river Euphrates here. No geographic markers. It's simply Euphrates. Every single time the Euphrates is mentioned, verse 4, um, where it says, go to the Euphrates, it's just the Euphrates, not the river Euphrates, not the Euphrates in Babylon, not the Euphrates in Carchemish. Um, go to the Euphrates and hide it in the, the rock. Uh, verse 6, after many days, the Lord said to me, rise, go to the Euphrates. Verse 7, then I went to the Euphrates. Just the Euphrates. Well, the Euphrates... In the Hebrew, it's it's Paris or Pareth um, or Paratha. It could be, and that word Pareth or Paratha that is used for the Euphrates River. Again, remember the rivers that went through the Garden of Eden. One of them was the Euphrates, the other was the Tigris. It was the Paris, but the Paris or the Pareth or the Paratha River also is a geographical marker of a town not too far from Jeremiah's home in Anathoth. It was in the tribe of Benjamin. And that was a place that also had its own river, a wadi, that the prophet could have gone to to bury this linen, and it wouldn't have taken him out of town for, you know, four months' journey. And it wouldn't, and you have to question what the necessity of that would be. You want him kind of local, you want the people to see what he's doing. You want the people to ask questions. Well, what are you doing, Jeremiah, burying this linen cloth or this uh, loincloth? What are you doing digging it up? What does these things mean? And so that's probably what the answer to the problem is, that it was not something at a great distance where he had to journey. It was something nearby where he lived in Anathoth, in the tribe of Benjamin, some four or five miles north of the city of Jerusalem, where he's told to go and bury this loincloth. Well, he has to, he's, he, he's told to buy a linen loincloth. Now, he's a priest, and the priests would wear linen loincloths as undergarments, um, that uh, you know clung to their skin, and uh, there were of course the garments that went over the the loincloth, 
and he is told to put on a loincloth, which would be sensible for a priest to wear as an undergarment, and to go buy it. So you're buying it new, you're buying it fresh, you're getting it straight from the store. I don't know, you don't get an order from Amazon, you just, you know, you go to the local market, you get the loincloth, and, and you put it on. It's fresh and it's new. But God tells him he's not to dip it in water. Well, what's the reason to dip some loincloth in water? Well, to wash it, to clean it. That's how you would clean a linen loincloth. You'd take it and you would dip it in water. And you'd scrub it a little bit, and you'd wring it out, and it'd be fresh and, and new. Jeremiah, do not dip it in water. And it's probably also, don't dip yourself in water either, Jeremiah. Because we want this loincloth to get good and grimy. We want this loincloth to be actually good and dirty. So that even though the people wouldn't actually see you don an undergarment like a loincloth, after a while, you don't get noticed. <laughs> after a while, people will say, well, what's that fragrant uh, or not so fragrant odor that is assailing my olfactory sensibilities? Jeremiah, you stink. There's a smell that is coming from your person. Well, he says, God has told me to put the linen loincloth and not to wash it. Not to, clean, not to clean it. It is filthy, it is dirty, and I'm continuing to wear it until the Lord came a second time and told him to take the loincloth, and we're not told how long that was, but probably wasn't the next day. It was probably he's wearing it for some considerable degree of time to get it grimy, to get it dirty, to get it to be a filthy smelly, stinky loincloth that he's going to take to the wadi, he's going to take it to this place in um, Paratha, and he's going to hide it in a cleft of a rock. He's going to bury it. He's going to put it into uh, some place in the rock where it can't be found for a period of time, and that's what he does. I went and I hid it by Again, this place called the Euphrates, likely not the Euphrates River, likely Euphrates, like Peparatha in Benjamin, as the Lord commanded me. And then after many days, again, the word of God comes to him. And it's interesting, when you have these symbolic actions done, God's word comes, says, do this, the prophet does it, there's this obedience that is rendered, and then usually something is said again, and obedience is again rendered. See the pattern of God's word coming to the prophet, and obedience rendered to the commandment of God, with very little questions asked. He's not saying, Lord, what do you mean by this? He's just simply complying with what the word of God directed him to do. He knows he's a prophet. He knows that this is part of prophetic work that he's given to do, to do these symbolic actions. And sooner or later, God's going to disclose what he means by this. But meanwhile, he's simply going to be the obedient servant of the Lord and do the things that the Lord had commanded him to do. Well, now he's told to go back to the Euphrates and he's to, he's to um, dig up the loincloth. He went to the Euphrates, he dug, he took the loincloth from the place where it was hidden, and behold, the loincloth was spoiled, it was good for nothing. Now, the significance of the loincloth is that the loincloth speaks something of the nation in its relationship to God. And it speaks something in its relationship to God that underwent a very striking alteration. And we're going to, what we're going to do is we're going to work from the, from the back end forward. Okay, We're going to begin really with the uh, 
statement that's made in verse uh, verse 11 uh, where it says for as the loincloth clings to the waist of a man there's this adherence of the loincloth to the body to the skin of the person that's wearing it it clings to the waist of the man and that word cling is really the same word that for this cause will a man leave his father and mother cleave to his wife you're going to cling to your wife you be attached in a union with your wife so the loincloth is attached to the person who's wearing it and in the way that the loincloth is attached to the person that's wearing it as an undergarment so I made the whole house of Israel and the whole house of Judah to cling to me and to cling to me to the end that they might be for me a people a name a praise and a glory God had very special purposes for this nation to be his nation. They were to cling to him, cleave to him, follow him, obey him, trust him, cling to his word, obey his statutes, obey his laws, all to the end that they would be before God a people who would possess his name, who would be his praise, who would be his glory. And it's interesting, the word for glory uh, uh, that has the the, the, the connotation of uh, um, again I told you I two pages of notes and I can't see it on my page of notes um, but it has this notion of of, 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 of adornment uh, that God was going to beautify the nation uh, God was going to make that nation the, really stand forth as uh, adorned with beauty that's the idea being adorned with beauty there's to be a glory emanating from the nation and now what is emanating from the nation in essence God's saying is, is a horrible stench it's a horrible stench like a, like a filthy dirty loincloth well God's intention in entering into covenant with the people of Israel was that they would be this glory to him this adorning uh, this people clothed with the adornment of praise a glory to his name a, a, a people, a name um, we have a reference similar to this in the book of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy chapter 26 um, similar language it's in a different order uh, it has uh, different connecting words but the essence of these things a name, a praise, a people all is, all is found in this section of Deuteronomy 26. And um, let's read from verse 16. It says, This day Yahweh your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that Yahweh is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And Yahweh has declared today that you are a people. That's what God says. The people who cleave to him will be to him, a people. You will be a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you, that you are to keep all his commandments, that he will set you in praise. That's the other word, another word that's used. He will set you in praise and in fame and in honor 
high above all the nations that he has made. And you shall be a people holy to Yahweh your God as he has promised. So God set them forth to be a special people. A people who would be a treasured possession. A people that would be a praise and a name and, and fame and glory and honor. That would be given to them as they cling, cling to him. As they don't depart from him. As they walk in his statutes and as they walk in his ways. But now, the question is, is that how God found them? Did God found, find them as a people? Did God find them fully clothed and in beauty and in glory and in praise? Well, actually, no. This is another passage where similar language is used in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 16. And the original picture, when God first found this nation, was not pretty to see. In fact, it's almost hard to read. Ezekiel chapter 16. We have the picture of this, this nation on the day of its birth not having its, uh, uh, its, its cord cut, its umbilical cord cut. There was nothing that, no water that cleansed you. There was nothing that washed you. There was no rubbing with salt. You weren't wrapped in swaddling cloths. No eye pitied you to do any of these things. To you, out of compassion, you were cast out into the open field, for you were poured on the day that you were born. Now, you were like a, a miscarriage. You were like an abortion. You were like a, a, something that was discarded at birth, just left out to die. And no one cared for you. Nobody cared to cleanse you. Nobody cared to wash you. Nobody cared to put you in swaddling cloths. That's the graphic picture that God gives of what the nation was like prior to his intervention prior to his coming to address them and deal with them in grace and redeem them from Egyptian bondage and bring them to himself, is when I passed by and I saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you, in your blood live. I spoke the words of life to you. I said to you, in your blood live. And I made you flourish like the plant of the field. And you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. An amazing picture of God's grace meeting these people in their ugliness and in their distress. And God clothing them and God washing them and God covering their nakedness and God vowing to them and entering into covenant with them. And then verse 9, I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you, anointed you with oil. I clothed you also with embroidered cloth and shod you with fine leather, wrapped you in fine linen and covered you with silk and adorned you with ornaments. I put the bracelets on you. I made you to be beauty for me. I made you to be a glory for me. I put a ring on your nose, earrings in your ear, a beautiful crown on your head. That's similar language to Jeremiah in terms of the, the adornment, the beautiful crown that was upon uh, their head. In fact, I think that's the exact word that's translated uh, here, beautiful crown. You were adorned with gold and silver and your clothing was of fine linen. In other words, you became what you became because of my grace. I met you in my love. I took you to myself. I made you to be my people. And now because of what I've done for you, in verse 14, your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. Look at what you were. Look at what you were when I entered into covenant with you. 
Look at the privileges I bestowed upon you, the beauty I conferred upon you, the goodness that I showed to you. And you clung to me. You cleaved to me. And hence all these things were true of you. But now when you sought to break free from me, to no longer cling to me, you cut yourself off from the source of cleansing. You cut yourself off from the source of having your sins washed away. You cut yourself off from me who was the one who forgives you, who pardons all your iniquities, who forgives your transgressions. You cut yourself off from the fountain of never-ending grace. You cut yourself off from the source of all that's good. How could you think you could be good for anything? Again, that's the conclusion. This linen cloth became good for nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you're good for nothing. Apart from me, you can do nothing. All of your goodness is found in me. I am the one who cleanses. I am the one who sanctifies. I am the one who beautifies. I am the one who bestows privilege and honor upon a people. But it's upon a people who cleave to me. It's upon a people that do not depart from me. That's where the relationship began. And if Israel would have sustained that nearness to God, that clinging to God, that staying near to God, then beauty would have continued. Praise would have continued. Glory and honor would have continued. But in verse 10, this people who refuse to hear my words, who stubbornly follow their own heart and have gone after other gods to serve them and worship them, shall be like this loin cloth, which is good for nothing. Not the swaddling cloths or the linen cloths or the things I clothed you in when I first took you to myself and adopted you as my own. Now you'd be like the stinking loincloth that Jeremiah never washed, that he wore on his body days without number till it got really rancid and smelly and stinky and it became an offense to everything around. That's what you become. You become an offense. You become an offense to the God of heaven who sees your wickedness, who sees your evil ways, who sees your rebellion, who sees your stubbornness of heart. You seize your idolatry as you've gone after other gods to serve and to worship them. You'll be just like this line cloth, which is good for nothing. What a graphic picture of the transition of evil that took hold in the lives of the people, this striking alteration of their affairs, having been found by God in their blood unclean, unwashed and made to be the people of God and being conferred upon with such honors how would you ever depart from the source of never ceasing grace never ending good that is found in the Lord our God and you know that's the striking picture that Jeremiah wants the people of Judah to consider you brought this on yourself you brought this Invasion that's about to come, this destruction that's to come upon the nation, you brought it on yourself by your own wicked departure for me. 
very likely that the reason that this parathat in Benjamin is made to be the place that Jeremiah is told to go with to bury the loin cloth is that it has a, a linguistic connection with the Euphrates. Uh, the name itself is very similar to the Euphrates River. And it's to the Euphrates that the people are going to be sent. They're going to be exiled from their land. They're going into captivity. The Babylonians are going to destroy them. And they're going to be dug deep into Babylonian soil, just like the loincloth was dug deep into the soil by the wadi in Paratha in Benjamin. Um, and when they come, and, and, and in that situation, in their sin, in their rebellion, in their idolatry, in their departure from me, um, they will be good for nothing until they return to me, until they come back to me. And God says, I will do this. I will send you off. I will send you away. I will bury you deep for 70 years into the soil of Babylon. That just as this linen cloth is spoiled, I'll spoil not your being, but your pride. I will bring an end to the pride, the pride of your heart that thinks you can go after your own heart and after your own ways and think you have a better end than, than, than what Yahweh your God can, can supply. That's what their trouble was or that's what their great transgression was. Who needs the Lord? We'll figure it out on our own. We'll find some other God who can give us rain and fruitful seasons, who can bless us with children, who can give us prosperity. We'll just cover all of our bases. We'll maybe serve the Lord on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we'll serve the other gods of the pantheon of gods that the nation served on the other days just to make sure we have everybody happy. And it's just their own hearts are leading them down such pathways. It's their own pride that's leading them to fail to see the source of all of their good. It's not in themselves. It's not in their wisdom. It's not in all of their devisings. It's not in all of their plotting and planning. It's how they're going to make life better for themselves. The only full and rich and fragrantly abundant and useful life is found in clinging to God and cleaving to Him and being like that garment that holds to the body that we hold to the Lord, the source of all of our good. I think that's something of the picture of the ruined loincloth. Don't be like that loincloth. Ever cling to the source of your washing and cleansing, the source of forgiveness, the source of all grace, the source of the one who can truly make you to be a people, a name, a praise, a glory, who can adorn you with good things and bless your life with abundance. Um, again, the folly of Israel in their pride was to think that apart from God, anything good would come. And the reality is, of course, nothing good did come. And they became useless, good for nothing, until their pride was spoiled. And they were humbled under the hand of the living God. And in repentance of heart, they returned to him to again receive the benefits of that relationship of love that God established by way of covenant with them 
as his people. Let's not be guilty of that folly. Let's walk humbly before the Lord. What does the Lord require of you? It's to walk humbly with him. It's to humble ourselves under his mighty hand that he might lift us up. Let's not give the Lord any cause to say, I need to spoil the pride of this man or that woman. Let's walk humbly before him in the full recognition that it's only as we cling to him, as we make him our, our, the source of all of our good, saying with the words of the psalmist, I have no good apart from you, that we'll find the true riches of life and the true identity of a people who possess a name, a praise, and a glory. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this striking picture that Jeremiah embodied in this action that he did and the symbolism that he set before the nation of Israel. And Lord God, we call upon your name to grant us grace that we would not be guilty of such an alteration of, of life, that we would not be a people who once had life in its abundance or seemed to have life in its abundance and left our first love, that we would be faithful, that we would cling to you and we would find in you the source of all that is good and all that is needed and all that enables us to attain anything that is good. So help us, we pray, um, to not forsake you, not to be guilty of that horrific departure from you that Jeremiah speaks about earlier, that his people committed two evils, that they forsook you, the source of living water, and you doubt for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. Give us, we pray, to enjoy the blessings of those rivers of living water that Jesus gives to his people who look to him and trust in him and, and cling to him. So we pray you'd hear our prayers. We're thankful for this Lord's Day for the privilege that we have as your people of coming aside from the normal activities of life to give ourselves to you, to cling to you, to look to you, to learn of you. And we pray that the things we have heard from your word today would be things we would reflect upon and we would recall and we would remember that your word would have its way with us and would fashion and shape us as a people who would be capable, uh, by your grace and help, of living to the praise of your glory. We are thankful for your goodness and your love, and pray that you dismiss us with your blessings as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.